fairy tales, children's stories about magical and imaginary beings and lands, often the first lens we give young minds to view the world they live in. Many assume these are fictional stories to be taken lightly, but what if there is more to them? This is a podcast where we'll tell you some myths and tales that you thought you knew, and we'll show you how they are connected to real-life crimes today. This is Scary Tales, where the stories of your childhood meet real-life horror. We'll discuss how the light and happy tales of youth actually have a darker history to them. We'll also discuss true crime today and some of the eerie connections they have to the myths and legends of yesterday. Tune in for a new tale every other Tuesday. You can find us on Spotify, Apple, and anywhere you stream your podcast. Uh, Robin Hood and Little John walking through the forest, laughing back and forth at what the other one has to say. <laughs> that does not sound right. No? I don't know. All I know is a Robin Hood and Little John running through the forest. They're walking now. No, in the movie, they're always running. They're always this on the run. This they're walking. Reminiscing this and reminiscing that and having such a good time. Who wrote this song? The words don't go. I but, know. That. But I told Hannah, they just stole this song from a... How does scoop, the scoop the, the, the field, field mice and bopping them on the head? But maybe maybe they stole it from Robin Hood. Oh, they it, the other lyrics were they were drinking, they guzzled it down. <laughs> Never dreaming that a scheming sheriff and his posse was a watching them and gathering around. Ooh la de, ooh la de, golly, what a day! <laughs> I do not remember any of those verses other than the running through the forest. But oh, for the rest of the day, I'm gonna go ooh la de, ooh de, dolly, good la gaddy goody. Dolly, golly, Dolly so, Parton. And today's episode is on Jolene, Dolly Parton. Jolene, We okay. could do an episode on uh, Dolly Parton. Dolly. Dollywood. I wonder if there are any ghosts of Dollywood. We did the ghosts of Disney. Mm-hmm. I Go- bet there are some ghosts of Dollywood. Yeah. It's like the Walmart version of Disneyland. I've but, never but been to Dollywood. Dollywood. Well, we need to go. I love Dolly, though. Let's look up some ghosts and then go to Dollywood. Mm-hmm. My hey. grandmother, um, she, I have a video of her telling me that uh, Dolly Parton's boobs are real. Yeah, they are. Yeah. yeah. She said God gave her those. Yeah. And I had to break it to her. I said, Ruth, those aren't real. Now listen, whether they're real or not, I love Dolly. Yeah. Uh, you can sign up for her like Imagination Station library program. Imagination and she'll, Station? She'll, I, I think that's what it's called. She sends, she'll send you, your kid a book for free every month until they're five. What? We literally get a book in the mail every month from Dolly Parton. Do you get the coat of colors or whatever it's called? What? That not the Bible story. The she made a book. It's a children's book. Oh. It's called like the coat of Oh, I don't I don't know. I, the last one of the ones we got uh was uh Rad uh, Tad and Dad. It was about a little tadpole and mm-hmm. his dad. It was cute. Okay. Yeah. I mean, they're like they're cute books. Yeah. We get Way to go, like, Dolly. I know. Way to go, Dolly. It's not. I already forgot what we were talking about. Today. It's not Dolly Parton. <laughs> it's Robin Hood. Oh, Robin Hood. Which Lacey freaked me out before we started recording because she said, "I didn't watch Robin Hood," and I said, "Ever?" And she said, "No, just recently. Like we normally recently will watch the movie, but I thought she meant ever." You should have had more faith in me, which would have been heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Is there a Disney movie you haven't seen ever? You know, until the other night, I'd never seen, uh, what's it called, with um, Baymax, um, the big white guy. It looks like the Michelin Man. Oh, Big Hero uh, 6. Big Hero 6. Mm-hmm. And I've never seen Wreck-It Ralph. But all, because those are... Those are newer. Yeah. Well, that's fine. I need to sit down, though, and watch them. Yeah. Because okay. I just, like, lowered my authenticity no, rating. Just with those two, that's fine. If you were going to say, like, you know, Pocahontas, yeah. you were going to have issues. <laughs> Idiot. But... 
But no, today we're bringing you Robin Hood, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is a fun one. Yep. Well, it's very reminiscent of uh, King Arthur's Table, yes. where it's like, is it real? Was he a real historical yes. figure? A little bit not? of truth, a little bit of fantasy, a little, little bit, bit of spooky spook. Mixture in between there. So tell us tell us about Robin Hood. Disney's version? You want yeah. Disney's Disney, version? Disney first, as always. It was released in 1973. And it is the first animated movie that began production after Walt's death, which is very sad. But in their version, Robin Hood and Little John, or Robin Hood and Little John run through the forest. Every time we say their name, we're going to have to sing it. (laughs) They are two outlaws living in Sherwood Forest, where they rob from the rich and give to the poor townsfolk of Nottingham. Nottingham. Meanwhile, Prince John and his assistant, Sir Hiss, the snake, arrive in Nottingham on a tour of the kingdom. Knowing the royal coach is laden with riches, Robin, Robin, and Little John rob Prince John by dis- by disguising themselves as fortune tellers. And this embarrasses Prince John, and he puts a bounty on their heads and makes the sheriff his personal tax collector. The sheriff of Nottingham takes pleasure in collecting money from the less fortunate townsfolk. Boo. Boo. In an attempt to catch Robin Hood, Prince John hosts an archery contest with the winning prize being a kiss from Maid Marian, who is his childhood sweetheart, is Robin Hood's childhood sweetheart. And Robin wins the contest, but he's captured and Prince John sets his execution. It's a little dark. It's pre- that's, the execution is pretty mm-hmm. dark for, for Disney. Uh, Little threatens Prince John into releasing Robin, and then he, along with the rest of the town, flee to Sherwood Forest, and Prince John is obviously very angry. He raises taxes and imprisons town folk who cannot pay. Friar Tuck, you remember him? Mm -hmm. A friend of Robin's is eventually arrested and sentenced to be hanged, and Prince John knows that Robin Hood will come to the friar's rescue, and then he will have caught both of them, so Little... What is that phrase? Two, two, two for one special. Little catch. What is it? A uh, bird in the bush, a stone in the hand. What is that phrase? I've, I have no idea. One in the kill, bush. Kill two birds with one stone? That's it. That, there's, a, <laughs> there's another one that's... I'll look it up later. Uh, let's see. I lost my place. Uh, <laughs> bird in the bush. So they... Uh, let's see. Blah, 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 blah. Friar Tuck. He is eventually arrested and sentenced to be hanged, like I said. Prince John knows that Robin Hood will come to Friar's rescue. I said that, too. However, having learned of the plot, Robin and Little John chose to sneak into the castle during the night. And with Little John managing to free all of the prisoners while Robin steals Prince John's tax money. And Sir Hiss awakens to find Robin fleeing the chaos. I mean, excuse me, fleeing. And chaos ensues as Robin and the others try to escape to Sherwood Forest. The castle catches on fire. Robin almost dies, but doesn't. The heroes win the battle and leave Prince John running away with his literal tail between his legs because he's a lion. Yep. Later, King Richard returns to England, placing his brother under arrest and allows his niece, Maid Marian, to marry Robin Hood and the king and queen at their royal wedding. Turn oh, what That didn't make sense. To marry Robin Hood as the king and queen, there you go, at their royal wedding, turning the former outlaw into an in-law. Huzzah. Huzzah. And they all lived happily ever after. That song will be stuck in your head for the rest of this episode. Yes. Now, besides the Disney movie, 
Robin Hood has had countless ballads, books, films. He's been the subject of a lot of different things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He has emerged as one of the greatest folklore heroes ever. um, And it's especially popular, obviously, in the home country of England. But the question, which we kind of referenced earlier, is did he really exist? Obviously not in the Disney animal form, Mm -hmm. but did a Robin Hood steal from the rich, give to the poor really exist? The first known reference to Robin Hood in English verse is found in the visions of Pyre's Plowman, which, or Pierce, however the British Mm -hmm. would say that, which this is a poem written by William Langland in the second part of the 14th century. So just just for reference, this is shortly before Geoffrey Chaucer's famous Canterbury Tales. I heard of that. I teach that mm-hmm. to my to my students. What but, is one Canterbury Tale? So it's like all that. Like there's a bunch of different. I mean, do you want me to digress? Uh, well, there's just a bunch of different pilgrims going on this pilgrimage. So you've got like yeah, I remember that. You've got the Knight's Tale, Jack and the, the Yeoman's Tale. No, no, no. Uh uh-uh. uh. Oh. No, you've got like the the priest ta- the nuns priest tale. They like each tell a story on their That's way. That's vaguely familiar. Yeah, but also my English teacher in eleventh grade, her foot got ran over by a tractor, and it was um, half like she had a cloth cloth feet. And I think that's when we learned that. And all I could do was stare at her claw feet. And yeah, then halfway that, through the year, she sense. got a boob job. Oh, and they were Dolly Parton size. So, full circle. Yep. Um, I love that for you. Mm-hmm. Come, hey, feel free to come sit in my class. Or we're about to start the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. So. so in this poem, not Jeffrey Chaucer's book, but in uh, the vision of Piers Plowman, a poorly educated parson represents and confesses, quote, although I can't recite the Lord's Prayer, I do know the rhymes of Robin Hood. He knew him. So this shows that during the time, like even uneducated people would have known about the legends of Robin Hood. Mm-hmm. One of the oldest known written ballads about the forest outlaw was written in the late 15th century and was called Robin Hood and the Monk. This time he makes it to the title. Yep. In the uh, It is the only early ballad that is set in Sherwood Forest near Nottingham. It also features Little John, one of the best known members of the Band of Merry Men. And in this ballad, Robin Hood ignores the advice of Little John. And he leaves the safety of the forest to travel to Nottingham to attend mass and pray to the Virgin Mary, like a good little religious boy. Mm -hmm. But when he gets to church, Robin is recognized by a monk who turns him over to the sheriff. Uh, The monk then sets off to go tell the king of Robin's capture. But before he can arrive, little John and much another of Robin's men overtake the monk on the road and murder him and his servant. They didn't put that. That did not make it to the Disney the story. The Disney movie. Then, posing as the monk and his page, Robin's men deceive the king. Kind of like how in the movie they dress up as fortune tellers. Right. But they, but minus the murder. Mm-hmm. Uh, they deliver the news of Robin's capture to him and are rewarded with the money and titles. Uh, they return to Nottingham and they free Robin from the prison. And obviously the sheriff is hum- humiliated, but he does survive the story. While Robin, Little John, and Much return to the forest with forgiveness from the king. Uh, in in the story, the monk, not the sheriff or the king, is the true villain, and he's a corrupt figure who violates the sanctity of the church by betraying Robin's presence to the sheriff. This is like a common theme in Middle Age literature. It's the same. Right. In, it's a 
Canterbury commentary Tales. on yeah the hypocrisy of the yeah. church. So a lot of your villains. I mean, same in Canterbury Tales, the, some of the worst people on the on the trip are the monk and the priest and the the nun and they're all on a trip together. Yeah, it's just like a bunch. It he he featured like one main person or one person from like every main walk of life. So you would oh. have like the yeoman who's like an outdoorsman. You'd mm-hmm. have some people from the church. You had like the parson and the plowman who were like the working from the working class. Jack, so, Jack and his beanstalk. Jack and his beanstalk. Mm-hmm. But but it's the it's the church people that are the villains of the story. Yep. Later versions of Robin Hood stories would move away from these types of deaths and murders, but the medieval audience did did not seem overly troubled by them. Because Middle Ages were like death. That's just something you see when you walk out your door in the morning. Right. Bring out your Mm -hmm. dead. Mm -hmm. Medieval crimes and crime and punishment often centered around brutality and violence. Kings, lords, and their representatives would use it to punish rebellious peasants they often would do this in public squares as like a warning. Uh, bodies would be hanging from the gallows uh, and displayed warnings to all people who were walking the roads, the crosswords. These were familiar sights for people. You're just walking down the street and you're like, damn, I love John. He I, was a good guy. Yeah. I mean, it sucks if you recognize mm-hmm. who, who was hanging up there. But in the early Robin Hood ballads, uh, or the early Robin Hood ballads began to show a, a turning of the tables in which the lower classes are able to punish the upper classes through trickery and violence. Oh my, how the turntables. <laughs> how the tables have turned. But it really wasn't until the later in the 15th century that we see the theme, the like classic theme that we know of, of stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. In one of the longest ballads, a jest of Robin Hood, Robin says, if he be a poor man of my good, he shall have some. This is what this is what Disney focuses on. Just a mm-hmm. little stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. Mm-hmm. In these tales, Robin belonged to the lower class and was considered a yeoman. Who's another person that goes on Jeffrey Chaucer's trip? Uh huh. Um, which is it's like a. It might lump. have been Robin Hood. It could have been. It's mm-hmm. like a yeoman's like a outdoorsman. Mm-hmm. I picture I I tell kids he's like a lumberjack. There you go. Medieval lumberjack. Still got to do the episode on Paul Bunyan. There you go. Uh, it, the medieval English ballads would use this term to describe a sti- status higher than a peasant, but lower than a knight. So they would have been like a working class, but not with a little bit of nobility. They yeah. weren't poor. They had a job. They would work mm-hmm. outdoors. They would like work the fields for the knights and the religious or the fame, not famous people, uh, noble people. Just your standard yeoman. Yeah. Yeoman, Yeo, one might say. Yeoman is how it's, it's written. So Robin Hood takes on a role as a administrator of justice for the underclass in in the jest, that ballad we were talking about. When Little John consults his leader for guidance on whom to beat, rob, and kill Robin. Yeah, earlier, earlier versions, I mean, yeah. uh, or later versions, Mary. <laughs> Mary kiss kill? Kiss is the word we're going to go with, yes. Oh, yeah, Mary kiss kill. Mm-hmm. Um, in this, it's beat, rob, kill. Robin Hood provides him with a code dividing among the lines of the rich and the poor. So no peasants, yeomen, or virtuous squires were to be harmed. Okay. On the other hand, the merry men were allowed to, quote, beat and bind bishops, archbishops, and above all, the loathed sheriff of Nottingham. So Robin, the Robin Hood legend also takes a bloodier turn than the previous versions as vengeance is delivered to these villains. So in the jest, Robin shoots the sheriff with an arrow. 
They didn't include that. No, we had an archery contest, but yeah. the, they mm-hmm. shot at bales of hay rather than him. Uh, and then he slits his throat with a sword. Nice. In the 15th century manuscript of Robin Hood and Guy of Gisborne, Robin is not content with just killing his opponents. He also mutilates their, mutilates their corpses with a knife, which is a deed that he carries out with, with he loves it. Mm-hmm. He relishes it. He, goes, he <laughs> enjoys it so much. Then we move on to the 16th century, where Robin Hood lost some of his dangerous edge as he and his men were absorbed into celebrations of May Day. I thought May Day was just the thing at school where you have a the, contact, the, you do tug of war, you yeah, run around on a flagpole. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, no, this is every spring the English would celebrate the start of spring with a festival that often featured athletic contests as it's well tug as... tug of war. Yep, tug uh-huh. of war. As well as electing the kings and queens of May. I'm and, the queen of May because that's when my birthday is. Oh, perfect. No, you're the queen of Halloween. October. I'm the queen yeah. of Halloween. Yeah. And May. Okay. As part of the fun, uh, participants would dress up in costumes as Robin Hood and his men to attend and revel in the games. Let's restart this tradition. Oh, oh you and just dress up as Robin Hood yeah, for the whole month May. of May? Yep. You just play games? Yep. Okay. Done. Done. Uh, it is during this period that Robin Hood also became fashionable among royalty and even associated with nobility. He was from the poor, and now he's getting getting friendly with the nobility. Mm-hmm. One story from 1510 claims that Henry VIII of England, who was barely 18, dressed up as Robin Hood and burst into the cha- bedchamber of his new wife, Catherine of Aragon. Uh, ooh, and I bet she just, uh, her clothes just immediately fell off. She probably loved they it. They loved that back then. They probably, uh, yeah, she probably loved it. Yeah. There, accompanied by his noblemen, he entertained the queen and the ladies-in-waiting with dancing and other shenanigans. That's f- just imagining that, like, if I... I'll never see Robin Hood the same. Yeah. If I ran that. in, like, maybe I'd hit the Quan, maybe I'd hit the Nene. Hit the Robin Hood. What was he doing? I don't... You know, back then? Like, what What did they hit? Maybe, maybe Robin Hood's move had to do with, like, you know, archery. You can't see Hannah. A little flexing. A little, little hand gesture. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Somebody make a TikTok of that. Yeah. Uh, in 1516, King Henry VIII and Queen Catherine took part in these May Day festivities, and 200 of the king's men dressed in green, and one dressed as Robin Hood led the monarchs to a feast. Is Catherine one of the ones that died? I don't know. So I was just wondering. Is this? It, it, I want to. That did her head get cut off later? Maybe later down the road. Again. You're not a history teacher. I'm not a no history student. No, sorry. Well, well, we could do a whole episode probably on King Henry yeah. VIII. Yeah. So in the Elizabethan era, Robin Hood became popular a popular presence in plays staged for the upper classes. So obviously they all knew about him. Several playwrights, including William Shakespeare, featured him in their works. The most notable was Anthony Munday, who wrote two plays that centered around Robin Hood. Munday, he reinvents the outlaw as an aristocrat, Robert, Earl of Huntington, whose uncle disinherits him. Disinherits him. Uh, Robert flees to the forest, where he then becomes Robin Hood. Mm-hmm. There he meets Maid Marian. The two fall in love. He's no longer a yeoman in this. He um, basically gentrified this for the new audiences. Which makes it not as Not as good. No, it's mm-hmm. not as good. It's he's not, not an underdog anymore. No. Uh, he sets his work during the reign of King Richard I, the Lionheart. You see what they did there? He was known as the Lionheart. Disney made him a lion in the movie. Yeah. 
The king has left England to fight in the Holy Lands, and the younger brother, John, rules in his place. So we love a the good younger brother's evil. Mm-hmm. King comes back. So, so Disney gets their depiction of King John spot on. Like, they did a good job with this. King John of England, a.k.a. John Lackland, ruled from 1199 to 1216 CE. And he has gone down in history as one of the very worst English kings of all time, both for his character and for his failures. So, like, he yeah. wasn't winning in any arena. Just like in the movie, King John was very greedy, and his love for money is what eventually led to his demise. Yes, historical reference. So their their theme of greed, mm-hmm. spot on. Yep. Howard Pyle most famously recreated the legend for a children's book called The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood of Great Renown in Nottinghamshire. I like how they combined all those words, Nottinghamshire. <laughs> this is from 1883. That's just like a mouthful mm-hmm. of a title. But his work gained a new audience for Robin Hood in the United States, uh, which seemed to hunger for the tales of the Prince of Thieves in, in years to come. I like how the American version like that we all liked was the animated children's story. Oh, of course. They were like, let's dumb it down for them. Yeah. No, take out the murder. Mm-hmm. Take out the dressing up. Yeah. Throw some animals in there. Mm-hmm. Just nodding there you have it. Yeah. Got it. So again, did a real life Robin Hood inspire these tales? We've got all the tales. We've went back as far as we could with them. But what inspired the tales themselves? Because it goes back so far, it's hard to nail down an exact biographical information because obviously the legend has evolved ever since it first appeared in oral tales and then in the written word. Most of the early sources tend to be ballads, which were later written down. And Little John and Robin Hood. So they're also not wrong that it's a musical. Mm-hmm. Ballads were often about real historical facts, but it is difficult to like be certain what's true and what's legend. Again, because people are just singing songs mm-hmm. for a long time. The first written account, the Sloan Manuscripts, which mentions Robin Hood, claims that he was born in Lockersley in eleven sixty. I've seen other spellings as Loxley and my That's um, what that's what I was about to say, Loxley. Yeah, and my Loxley. stepsister is who is obsessed with Disney, her dog's name is Loxley after oh, nice. this. Yeah. Nice. Again, a historical reference. I mean we, we die for. We love it. So documentary doc, why did I just say it <gasps> you like just you did? did it. <laughs> D- n- yeah. I just pronounced them. Yeah. How how did that feel? Weird documentaries. Yeah, I just said documentaries. Anytime I, that's how you say it. Yeah, you're oh, no. you're welcome. Documentary. What is the other word I can't say? Massachusetts. Massachusetts. Mm. No, I can't remember the other one. You did pretty good that time. Yeah. Okay. So documentary proof survives in the court records of the York York Assisi's <laughs> Assisi's um, on ju- the 25th of July. 1225. So this refers to a quote, Mr. Robin Hod. Robert Hod. Robert Hod. Uh, penalties were recorded of, or were recorded in the Michael Must role of the ex. ex- That's a fancy word for executioner. Right. Ex. 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 I don't know what we're talking about, but. Anyway, he was in trouble. He was recorded in the courts. Uh, they included 32 shillings. For, uh, that was his penalty. Mm-hmm. And six pence. And six pence. For the chattels of one Robert Hodd, a fugitive. So they got a guy back then whose name was similar, who Robert was Hodd, Robin a fugitive. Hood. Yeah. Um, 
In the following years, uh, they referred to him again as Robin Hood, R-O-B-I-N-H-U-D, mm-hmm. all one word. And a bounty was placed on his head for 32 shillings and sixpence. So maybe this could be the Robin Hood. Mm, the one and only. Could be. By the year 1300, at least eight different people were being called Robin Hood, and at least five of those were fugitives from the law. Um, in 1266, the Sheriff of Nottingham, William de Grey, was in conflict with outlaws in Sherwood Forest, but it, and it appears that most likely several different outlaws built upon their reputation of a fugitive in the forest, and then over time the legend was born. And they just compiled it into one person. Right. And this would have been as early as the 13th century. But Robin Hood has kind of just become this common epithet for criminals. Yes. Like, something bad happens, you don't really know who it is, it's probably Robin Hood. Mm-hmm. Somebody, somebody's doing something bad. He's going know through the forest with little John and popping <laughs> it's up probably the field mice and popping them on the head. One of the most famous Robin Hood-related finds was uncovered in the 1820s near Bolsover in Derbyshire. And this local legend claims that two workers sinking a shaft for a new coal mine located Robin Hood's hideout. The one and only. His hideout. So the story goes that these two men dug and the the wall of earth alongside gave way and revealed this big cavern that had signs of habitation. There was a distinctive fireplace area that had wood ash as well as cooking pots and utensils. And then in one corner, sacks and barrels seemed to be where they would store provisions. Then on another wall, there were lined like numerous uh, broadswords and bows and weapons, uh, including a quiver still full of arrows. Robin Hood These could be his arrows. Then finally, at the very end of the gallery in a very small nook, there appeared to be a tiny little chapel area. It had like a cross hung on the back wall. And then there, lying on the stone altar, the two men found a skeleton wrapped in a deteriorating wool habit. Was it Jesus? Probably not, but it could be, Mm -hmm. could be. In one hand, he held a crucifix. In the other hand, he held a chisel. And on the wall just above his head, it said, quote, a long list of names was roughly scratched on the cavern wall and painfully scored at the bottom was, quote, I was the last Michael Tuck. Friar Tuck? That sounds like Friar Tuck's house then, not Robin Hood's. Or maybe they maybe they but were They're probably just buds and hanging out all the time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah maybe they're roommates. Okay, so here's some inspiration for Robin Hood, but what about the famous Sherwood Forest? You what may about ask. it? What about it? Add it to the list. Sherwood of places we visit. Mm-hmm. Okay, done. Sherwood Forest became a royal hunting forest after the Norman con- conquest of 1066. The Doomsday Book in eight, uh, 1086 recorded that Sherwood Forest covered most of Nottinghamshire above the River Trent and was popular with many of the kings, particularly King John and Edward I. The ruins of King John's Hunting Lodge are still visible near the village of King's Clipstone in Nottinghamshire. Go do a little hunting. Mm-hmm. In all of these tales, the forest is a prominent figure. It, the setting a lot of times is like a character in and of itself. So the forest in the Middle Ages included very extensive areas of cultivated land as well as wood and wasteland. 
They were the private preserve of kings and his officers and were usually protected by a harsh series of, of forest laws. So you got your regular laws, you got your forest laws. Right. And there was typically no appeal for the forest laws, like not even in the ecclesiastical church courts. Like king's not going to save you. Uh-uh. Church isn't going to save you. Like Jesus, you broke, you broke the forest law, the you're done. You're yeah. done. Forest law was extremely unpopular uh, among all sections of society, but especially it, it, it especially achieved its purpose of retaining vast areas of semi-wild land over which the king and his court could hunt. Very, mm-hmm. very exclusive hunting grounds. But the wilderness, the very wilderness of the land made it a perfect place for fugitives to hide out as well. And this is why areas such as Sherwood Forest and Barnsdale feature so prominently in outlaw legend. Because there were lots of outlaws there. Right. But obviously Sherwood Forest is mm-hmm. more popular. We Barnsdale. need to do an entire episode on haunted forest. <gasps> oh, that would be mm-hmm. great. Mm-hmm. Add it to the list. Add Dolly Parton. Dolly list. World. Yep. Haunted Forest. Another historical outlaw of Robin's time suffered similar identity problems. He could have been an impersonation or inspiration for Robin Hood's character. He also could have been an He could have been an impersonation. I know. Yeah. S- Freudian slip there. Folk Fitzwarren was furious when he discovered that a northern robber, Piers de Bruville, was using his name to cover his banditry. He was like, if I'm going to break the law... It, My name better be the one in the paper. Right. So he ambushed Pierce and his men in a house while they were in a house they were raiding and forced Pierce to tie his men to their seats and behead every one of them with his own hands. When the task was finished, Folk struck off Pierce's head himself, saying, None shall ever charge me falsely with theft. All right. So okay, he, Folk, right? Uh, he so Folk is actually a far more interesting character than Robin Hood, clearly, and uh, aggressively violent. Mm-hmm. And he has a personal link to King John. He was a childhood friend of John's, but their relationship was a rocky one. Mm-hmm. So one day, while playing chess, John broke the chessboard over Folk's head. I get it. And in retaliation, it's a wizard's chest. And in retaliation, there's our Harry Potter reference. Yep, there you go. In retaliation, Folk kicked John in the stomach. And when John went crying to his father, it was John who was beaten for complaining. Rocky relationship. I mean, I don't know. That guy sounds pretty on the money. Yeah, he might be. Mostly versions of the Robin Hood story give the same account of his death. That as he grew older, he became ill he went with little John to Kirkley's prior near Huddersfield to be treated by his aunt, who was a prioress. Um, so she works for the church. Mm-hmm. But a certain Sir Roger D. de Doncaster persuaded her to murder her nephew. Dun, dun, dun. And the prioress slowly bled Robin to death. Mm, you hate to see it. Also didn't make that didn't make but it. But they would also do that, right? Like bloodletting. Yeah, like bloodletting and leeching she, was she, like a common yes. way of like curing your illness because they just knew like, mm-hmm. oh, something bad is going on inside of you. Mm-hmm. So like, let's get all the bad blood out. Makes and so sense. she could have just been like, oops. baby, now we got bad blood. Yeah, she could have like easily made that look like an accident. Yeah. So with his last strength, uh, he blew his horn and little John came to his aid, but it was too It's late. like medieval life alert. Yeah. No, it's probably sadder than that. 
So there is a mound in Curly's Park within bow shot of the house that can still be seen. And it is said that this is his last resting place. His grave can be seen in Hathersage Churchyard in Derbyshire. Uh, And this tombstone reads, Here underneath this little stone lies Robert Earl of Huntington. Never archer were as good as he... And pe- oh no, that, sorry. It's hard to read in old a, English. It, it is, and it's it's supposed to kind of rhyme. So, mm-hmm. here underneath this little stone lies Robert Earl of Huntingdon. Mm-hmm. Never archer were as he so good. And Nailed pe- it. And people called him Robin Hood. Ooh, such, that's fire. Such outlaws as he and his men will England never see again. If I don't have something on my tombstone written by you that sounds that good, I don't want it. <laughs> And the, the date of this is 24th of December, 1247 A.D. Ooh. Well. So, the forest is real. Mm-hmm. Robin Hood was a little bit real. There's lots of Robin Hoods, probably. Right. Lots of people who inspired his the actual story. Disney got the main, you know, outline, right? Yes. They left out some they, bloody parts, yep. beheading, some yep. bloodletting. But, but for the most part, yeah. I mean, at least the overall message of, you know, greediness and generosity to the poor mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. rings true. I do love that Disney, like, heard the story, and they probably know about all the bloody stuff and everything. They were like, yeah, that's we, good. We can make that, that, that work. That story has some good bones. We, we can make that work. Yeah. Yeah. Right. We, we, can, we can do something with yeah. that. Well, I told Hannah before we started, my lips are real dry, my throat's real dry, I'm real thirsty. And it's time for a snack break. And we've got a good one. We got a good one. Little Ron and Johnny Hood and burn through the forest. Open up the field mice and bobbing them on the head. You're welcome. Soda me up, girl. She says, soda me up. Today, you want to tell them what we're drinking today while I crack these um, ones? I can't see the title. Oh, you know. Okay, we are drinking some Olipop uh, Soda Sparkling Tonic. So, we have three flavors for you today. You know what I just noticed? She missed the... We have vintage cola. We have... She doesn't... Oh, you you can add it yourself. I'll add it. We have orange squeeze. That one smells amazing. Orange squeeze? I thought it was orange cream. Yeah, and we have... Whoa strawberry vanilla oh i just noticed the coke has two grams of sugar the orange has five and the strawberry has three right i think so it's right here where are we oh yeah three yeah i would have thought the coke had the most which one should we start with i want to finish off with the coke okay so you want to save that one for last yeah uh let's try a little, little orange squeeze okay 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 oh do you hear that she smells like um so orange Cream. Yeah, it smells good. You ready? Yeah. Kind of tastes diet. Well, it is. So it's a, um, it's sparkling tonic. Mm-hmm. It's got probi. It's probiotics, botanicals, plant fiber. It supports digestive and immune immune health. Oh, I need to get some of those for Chase. Yeah. So th- I mean, and David, honestly. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Okay. Not that one's bad. pretty good for what it is. I give it a six out of ten. 
Oh, I, I thought that was delicious. All right, you want to do strawberry vanilla next? You're talking to someone who drinks about 10 Coke Zeros a day. That's right. This is this is going to be better for you than a Coke Zero. Uh, yep. So sorry. All right, this one? Mm-hmm. Strawberry vanilla. I love the way that smells. It smells like a strawberry muffin. Mm-hmm. If, if you if you blindfolded me, I could tell that this was strawberry yeah. and, and that that was orange. Absolutely. So there were two f- there were two parts to that. So their flavors are spot on. There was a part that was real herbally to me at the very beginning, and then it finished up with the creamy part. Yeah, I think I like that one. I'll give that one a seven out of ten. Oh, see, I, I think I like the orange one better. Really? Yeah, I like strawberries in general better than oranges ah well i'm probably the opposite Mm -hmm. okay and then last one try try your vanilla your vintage you don't want to taste it i'm okay why not i didn't i didn't bring a glass in fill that fill that whole thing up you need to drink that whole one why because i because i don't need to drink three of these but i just want you to taste this you got to but yeah go ahead and fill fill that but i might not want that much you do i can i already have to pee the whole thing (laughs) also i'm not afraid to drink after you yeah, I forget. That's just a me and David thing. Plant-powered, microbiome approved. I know I know. it's not going to be as good. As, that tastes as, a little bit like soy sauce. Yeah. You get, I don't get any... I, I don't get soy sauce. That, a little wasabi? None. I don't get any wasabi. Lacey's very... A little fish? No. None. Oh. Lacey's very particular. She, she also has her pinky out. Y'all can't <laughs> see that, but she's very proper with her pinky out drinking this. Hannah, that tastes like soy sauce. It looks no like soy way. sauce. It tastes like soy sauce. No way. I I would drink that in place of Coke. No, you wouldn't. I also don't drink a whole lot of Coke. Okay, you know what it I tastes like? I would feel like? better about drinking this than drinking You know that TikTok trend that was going around where you, you add balsamic vinegar with a splash of sparkling juice and it's supposed to taste like Coke? That's what I imagine this tastes like. This tastes like balsamic vinegar. It is not. Mm-hmm. Mm. Ugh. God. All right, so Lacey doesn't like the vintage cola, but that's Mm-mm. because she is a big, big Diet Coke fan. Wrong. That was sacrilegious, what you just said. Coke Zero. I hate Diet Coke. So sorry. Only Coke Zero. I, I, I would happily drink this in place of a Coke. Really? I really would. You're weird. I really would. Well, they're healthier, so. Mm-hmm. While Hannah's being healthy, I'll stick to my uh, aspartame. <laughs> the, yep. What, yep. Yep. I'm just, just I'm proud. Proud of it. Loud and proud. Those are these are I like these. Well there you go. You want me to get you a little Who is gonna come out with an invention that you can save cans? They like, ha- they have that. There's like a lid on top that you can oh put on there. Dang. Missed Sorry. opportunity. It's okay. Well I'll get you some for uh for your Halloween present. Okay. I like those. The marketing is very good. They're very The marketing cute. is beautiful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In in order, I'm going to go. My favorite was orange squeeze, then vintage cold, then no. strawberry vanilla. No. And I, I know you would say vanilla, strawberry vanilla, then orange squeeze, then you probably wouldn't even give vintage cola Mm-mm. a bronze medal. Mm-mm. I'll make you some vintage cola in my kitchen with some balsamic they, vinegar. Okay. Uh, they also had a root beer one, mm-hmm. but I don't, I don't like root beer, so I didn't get I one. love root beer. Oh, I should have yeah. the root beer one. Well, it's probably gross, so. I bet it's probably delicious. Oh, well, I'll get you some for your Halloween present. Thank you. I digress. Well, I'll give out Olipop for Halloween. You're going to be at Olipop for Halloween? No, no, I could be. But yeah. I was going to say I could give out Olipop for there, Halloween. Davis a vintage Oli- Coke. Olipop, if you're listening to this, if you guys send me 
Olipop. I will give it out for Halloween and document the whole thing. Perfect idea. And I'll dress up like Olipop too. Yeah. David can be vintage cola. Uh-huh. I can be orange squeeze. And Emma can be a little strawberry there vanilla. There you go. Olipop baby. You are, you are on this Olipop. You are like a fan. It. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I'm a fan. All right. I need to pee first. Okay. We'll let Lacey pee and then we'll come back for part two. BRB. I'm going to go ahead and record while you're taking a big old sip of your Sweetened Publix Deli Brewed Iced Tea. Do you know that they have the best I- the sweet tea? False. Who do you think does? Milo's. Really? Oh, 100%. Me and, um, actually all the butlers like this better. No. Yeah. Anyway, Lacey, Lacey has decided that my, my <sighs> probiotic Olipop is just too much and she's gonna wash it rubbing theodore's head right she's gonna (laughs) wash it down with some Publix deli tea Mm -hmm. hey theodore nothing better baby do you You like my sweater you want some olipop okay oh boy oh somebody just texted me and said um you home now or out and about i am recording the freaking podcast my neck pop yeah okay well we're back, and I'm not cutting that any of that out because oh, Theodore, you're just gonna... your girl is busy. Theodore, get out of her crotch. He's he's just gonna not be content unless I pet him the whole time. So okay. He's about to get thirty minutes of petting. Yep. There you go. <laughs> just leave him alone. He'll he'll uh he'll manage. Theodore. Will you, Theodore? Uh, Will you manage? Theodore, what do you have to say about that? The user in. You heard it here first. <laughs> so, what are we going to talk about today for this part two? Um, uh, um, We're talking s- about the murders at Robin Hood Hills. There you go. By Robin Hood himself. Mm-hmm. <sighs> or somebody well, somebody whose figure- initials are RH. Yeah. No. And they're going, oh, it's Robin Hood. No. But they do go by another name that we'll get to in a second. These are very, this story is very infamous. So, are you ready? Um, no, but yes. Okay. On May 5th, 1993, three eight-year-old boys set off on a bike ride around the hometown, their hometown of West Memphis, Arkansas. The next afternoon, the bodies were found in a stream, bruised, hogtied, and mutilated. Within a month, investigators were convinced they had found the killers, three misfit teenagers, who would become known as... The West Memphis Three. Dun, dun, dun. Have you, you still, you don't know the West Memphis Three, do you? I don't. Johnny, is the case that made, got made famous by Johnny Depp and all the other celebrities that were like, I mean, we'll get to it, but. Okay. Yeah. I don't, I, okay. I don't know where I've been. Sorry. Well, I'm about to learn you something. Well, ni- 1993, I would have been two years old. Yeah. I mean, I was three, but. Okay. On Wednesday, May 5th, 1993, and see, May. Mayday. Mayday. Yep. Three eight-year-old boys went riding their bikes together in West Memphis, Arkansas. And just for reference, this is a small town smack dab in the middle of the Bible Belt. The three boys were Steve Branch, also known as Stevie. He lived with his mother, Pam, his stepfather, Terry Hobbs, and a younger half-sister. And Stevie was an honor student and was in the Cub Scouts with his friends, Chris and Michael. 
Christopher Byers lived with his mother, Melissa, his adopted brother, Mark, and a 13-year-old half-brother. And by all accounts, Chris was a typical boy, although he was diagnosed with ADHD and prescribed medication. Which, who who wasn't or isn't? Yeah. Yeah. Then there's Michael Moore. He lived with his parents, Dana and Todd, and a younger sister. Mike, Mike loved being in the Cub Scouts and was known to wear his scout uniform just on the daily. Uh, that's precious. Friends noted that Mike had natural leadership qualities and often took charge among his peers. So there are the three boys. You got Stevie, Chris, and Michael Moore. On May 5th, all three boys attended school and returned to their homes around 3 p.m. Chris then went to Stevie's house where the two watched Muppet Babies together. If that doesn't age yep. this information, I don't mm-hmm. know what does. That and uh, Fraggle Rock is what I'm thinking of. You know Fraggle Rock? No. Hannah. <laughs> We're going to have a discussion. I'm so sorry. Mike joined the others around 3.10. At 4 p.m., the three boys left to ride their bikes. Stevie had actually just received a new bike from his grandfather. He was very excited about it. Some of that Olipop's coming back up. (laughs) (laughs) Stevie was told to be home by 4.30. And the boys were seen riding with several older boys by several onlookers in the neighborhood. Theodore, sit your... (laughs) Down. I was about to say, I hope you don't care about this rug. Yeah. He just rubbed he just rubbed every, rubbed everything rubbed all over it. Yeah. yeah. Sounds about right. Sometime before 5.30, another neighbor reported seeing Mike, Stevie, and Chris, and a fourth unidentified boy riding two bikes together about a half mile from the branch in Hobbs' home because they were neighbors. At 5.30, Chris's dad, Mark Byers, witnessed his adopted son riding a skateboard on his stomach down the middle of the street. I love that. I, it sounds fun. Why not? Uh, Well, Mark didn't think this was a a great idea, so he brought Chris home where he spanked him for being uh, unsafe. Mr. Byers then left to pick up Chris's older brother, who was testifying in a court on a traffic matter, and Mark told Chris to clean up the carport before he departed. Chris's mother, Melissa, remembered seeing her son in the carport around 5.45 p.m., and this was the last time she saw her son alive. By six, all three boys were together again on two bikes. I I can just imagine one on like the handlebars or the Mm -hmm. back pegs. And they just went riding around the neighborhood. And around 6.30, one neighbor heard Terry Hobbs calling for his stepson to come home. Between 6.30 and 7, several witnesses saw the boys riding their bikes toward Robin Hood Hills, which was a wooded area near the community. And this was a popular place for kids and teens to hang out. And the kids enjoyed all the hideouts and places to play while teens liked to go there to smoke and drink and oodalotty day. <laughs> so it's a, it, that's an interesting mix because you're going to have mm-hmm. some, some young innocence and mm-hmm. you're going to have some nefarious Ooh, things going go. on. At 8 p.m., Mark Byers called the police to report his son missing. He had already conducted, or he said he did, he conducted a general search of the neighborhood, including Robin Hood Hills. And by 9 p.m., Pam Hobbs and Dana Moore had also frantically called police, and they were searching for the boys. So friends, family, neighbors continued searching the area overnight. Some police were involved with the search, but an official search party by the police department was not set up until... Uh, was not set up that night. And this would be the first of several mistakes made by the police department. They have three small boys missing and they did not start an official search. Which, and isn't this like, isn't there the, the, I don't know, myth or saying that people, police would wait 24 hours? Oh yeah. 
for like, isn't that person. like a common thing yeah. where they'd be like wait 24 hours and mm-hmm. then get back to us it's but like three boys all right these are boys and then let, let me just fill you in on this next part so yeah at 8.40 that same evening, the West Memphis Police Department gets an odd phone call from the local Bojangles. If you don't have Nothing. Bojangles near you, your Bowberry Biscuit. Mm. But they weren't calling about no Bowberry Biscuit, were they, they? They weren't. The manager had called to report an incident that just occurred where a black man covered in blood and mud had entered the restaurant and gone back to the bathroom. An employee actually found him, uh, the man sitting by a toilet confused, and there was blood and feces smeared all over the walls. I was going to say that just sounds like a normal day at work for me, Ew. <laughs> unfortunately. Ew. The man fled the scene soon afterwards, and Officer Regina Meek arrived on the scene to investigate, but instead of going inside, she just she utilized what she had. She pulled through the drive-thru to speak to the manager. She's like, hey, y'all all right? Yeah. All right, can I get yeah. a Bowberry biscuit? Yeah. <laughs> Y'all good? She took his statement and left Bojangles 10 minutes later without ever setting foot inside or gathering evidence. And the next day, detectives arrived to find the staff in the process of cleaning the blood off the wall. I mean, this is a restaurant. Right, and like... You don't want blood, bo- bloody Bowberry biscuits. No. And they immediately asked the, the workers to stop cleaning. They collected blood scrapings from the wall, which were sent off to a crime lab for analysis. But those samples were never tested, and the detectives later admitted that they were lost. Mm. So, strike two. Mm -hmm. At 8 a.m. the next morning, the police began their official search for the boys. Hours later, at approximately 1.45 p.m., they discovered a tennis shoe floating in a ditch near Robin Hood Hills. Detective Mike Allen walked along the ditch bank to the place where the tennis shoe had been found. And he noticed that one area of the ditch bank was cleared of leaves while the rest of the bank was covered with leaves and sticks. So obviously something had been dragged through there or whatever. He described the clean or the cleared area on the bank as being slick, but having, quote, scuffs in the cleared off area, possibly shoe marks, I guess. So he got in the water, reached down to get the shoe, and unfortunately felt the body of Michael Moore. So this man then has to get down on his hands and knees and fill around in this murky brown water until he finds the other two bodies, Mm. Christopher Byers and Stevie Branch. Some of their clothing had been found in the water, and they found pieces of the boys' clothing tied around sticks that had been jammed into the mud. To keep them, like, Yeah, I guess from, yeah. From floating to the top. So we're going to kind of go over what they found here. Uh, I'm going to try and PG this as much as possible. If you want to look up more in-depth things, then... Yeah. yeah. Uh, go to Wikipedia or something. But P- PG, please. Mm-hmm. All three corpses had their right hands tied to their right feet and their left hands tied to their left feet. So hogtied, essentially. Shoelaces were used as ligatures. Michael Moore's body had wounds to the neck, chest, and abdominal regions that appeared to have been caused by a serrated knife. There were abrasions over his scalp that could have been caused by a stick. And Dr. Frank Peretti, a, set, a state medical examiner, testified that there was bruising and discoloring comparable comparable to that of children who are in these cases frequently they've been made to perform sexual acts or have had sexual acts performed on them there were defensive wounds to his hands and arms there's some other stuff we're not going to talk about but there was evidence that he was alive when he was in the water um, or excuse me, was still alive when he was put in the water because there was evidence of drowning. So I guess he had fluid in his lungs. Stevie Branch, his body also had wounds all over. He also had uh, injuries that appeared sexual in nature. 
and there was evidence too that he was also alive when he was put in the water. Christopher Byers, uh, the same thing, sexual mutilation, parts of him that uh, were missing, I'll say that. Mm. Um, and uh, Byers did not drown, he actually bled to death. So they were that brutally murdered and um, sexually also abused beforehand. All right. That was not fun to report. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Within the first crucial hours after the bodies were discovered, mistakes were made at the crime scene that negatively impacted the investigation. For one, the bodies had been removed from the water and placed on the adjacent embankment, possibly disturbing physical evidence or otherwise contaminating the crime scene. And although the bodies were discovered at 1.30 p.m., investigators didn't call the coroner until 3.58 p.m. And by the time the coroner arrived, fly larvae were present in the nostrils and eyes of the victims because they're lying in the open air. It's around 80 degrees that day, and this accelerated the decomp of the bodies. And luminol tests, which reveal the hidden presence of blood, were not performed at the scene until six days later. Yikes. So all around just a messy, messy scene. So rumors began circulating rather quickly that the killings might have been the work of devil worshipers. Inspector Gary Gitchell did nothing to squelch these rumors when he told reporters that his department was investigating the impossibility, or excuse me, the possibility that the murders were connected with, quote, cult activity. The West Memphis Police Department assigned the case number 9305066 of to course. the murder file. They, did, they mm -hmm. did this on purpose. And for a community at the heart of the Bible Belt, the triple homicide had all the trappings of a satanic ritual murder. So 1993, it was a great time. It was at the tail end of the cultural backlash known as satanic panic. Mm. Very reminiscent of Salem Witch Trails. Mm -hmm. The previous decade had witnessed a widespread epidemic of paranoia that not only permeated the talk shows and tabloids, but was also the forefront of popular culture. Stories of ritual abuse and satanic cults were just about everywhere. And the most notable of these was the trial of the McMartin Preschool. Have you ever heard of it? I have not. Where, uh, this is where several children made allegations of abuse against the staff all of which were later proven false, but they range from stories of underground tunnels and flying witches to molestation and bestiality. And though utterly ridiculous, they were the basis of a court case that lasted for over three years. Which I will say in, in uh, uh, props to their uh, public, their, their PR team, mm -hmm. when I was doing research for haunted schools, mm -hmm. McMartin Preschool never came up, so oh. they must have done their job, like wiping their reputation clean. There you I did go. Not know. Well, I guess the kids came forward and said they were doing all these things, and there was no evidence. They were just riding the the popularity wave of the mm -hmm. of the stories. So you had the Charles Manson murders, the Exorcist, the publishing of the Satanic Bible. Ouija boards were really popular. Nineteen ninety three, man. Uh huh. So with this bias in mind, investigators turned their eyes to three quote-unquote, troubled local teens. Jesse Miss Kelly Jr., he was 17 years old. You had Jason Baldwin, 16 years old, and Damian Eccles, who was 18 years old. 
So about these three boys, Jason Baldwin had come to the attention of police when he and several of his friends went to a spot in town with a bunch of abandoned, broke down cars and they were breaking out the windshields. I mean, that just sounds like that's, standard that's, teenage stuff. That doesn't sound like a cold just yeah. yet. That just sounds like riffraff. Mm-hmm. Riffraff. Jason's mother suffered from schizophrenia and drug addiction. And because of this, he had to raise his siblings and other people in the neighborhood also entrusted Jason with babysitting their children but he was a misfit. He liked heavy metal. He wore all black, and he kept his hair long. So Which doesn't doesn't burn well in, in, burn a, Bible, the in a Bible bill. No. Jesse Miss Kelly Jr. lived with his father, and is often described in many of the documentary. Doc, there you documentaries. Go, I said it. The documentaries. Uh, he was described as quote simple. It is said that his IQ ranged from sixty eight to seventy three, and his mentality was that of a five year old. He had gotten in trouble with the police. <laughs> this is so great. He stole the marching band's flags, the local marching mm-hmm. band, to use them in his backyard race course. Okay, low IQ doesn't mean satanic. Again, no. busting out windshields and using the marching band's flag for a little race car game. To me, that says, like, that was a good idea. Yeah, You should, maybe no stealing, but yeah. you saw some flags. Yeah, that's, that's not nefarious. Yeah. So then there's Damien Eccles, who's probably the most famous or infamous of the three. And he was thought to be the ringleader. So Damien was born Michael Wayne Hutchinson, December 11th, 1974. He grew up extremely poor. I'm talking, there was no running water or electricity. And uh, he had to constantly worry about where his next meal was coming from type of poor. His birth father was not in the picture for a very long time. And his mother eventually remarried a name um, excuse me, a man who would go to adopt Damien. And Damien's adoptive father was very involved in the Catholic Church, but was also harsh and ab- abusive. He changed his name to Damien after a Catholic saint who lived in Hawaii uh, and healed leopards. So, okay, yeah. Uh, a lot of people thought this. he changed it to Damien. That has like devil. Yeah, negative connotations right. to it sometimes. Yeah. Ever watch Vampire Diaries? the bad vampire his but, name but a saint who healed leopards and lived in hawaii i wasn't expecting that that half, was a plot twist bad. that was a plot twist for me uh let's see i lost my place okay he became interested damien became interested in wicca through his girlfriend at the time and he came to the attention of the police when he and his girlfriend were planning on running away to california and on their way they needed a place to stay for the night and broke into an abandoned trailer and they were found by police and taken into custody. Damien was basically given the option to go to jail or to go to a mental hospital, and he chose mental hospital. So now you have a troubled teen. That's also an interesting choice because yeah, what a kid wanting to run away is with his girlfriend does not feel like signs of like a mental problem. Yeah. Weird times back then. Yeah. Yep. Sorry. So you have a troubled teen. He has odd interest who has also spent time in a mental institution. He also spent time in a juvenile detention center where he he sucked the blood of another inmate. That's that's weird. Yeah, and, the, and I think later they proved that that... Just, we'll get into it, yeah. His girlfriend at the time also became pregnant, so he was a teenage father. So it just wasn't looking great for Damien. But again, nothing nefarious. It, right, that sounds like riffraff. Mm-hmm. Just, just not, what Hannah's not, calling riffraff. Not cult. Mm-hmm. Cultish. Theodore, just a little riffraff, bud. A little riffraff. Little, little riffraff. You're about to call some riffraff. Mm-hmm. 
Police question Eccles about the Robin Hood Hills murders three separate times between May 7th and May 10th, twice at the trailer park where he lived and once at the police station. Eccles told investigators he, quote, never heard of the three boys and that the person who committed the murders was obviously, quote, sick, which I would say yes. Mm -hmm. He said he spent the evening of May 5th at home with his mother talking on the phone with two friends in Memphis. And in his notes of the police station interview, Lieutenant James Sudbury reported that Eccles, quote, liked to read Stephen King novels and has, quote, evil written across his left knuckles. So... I read Stephen King novels. I was about to say, if reading Stephen King novels gets you on the murder suspect mm-hmm. list, then you me and Chase are probably... There you go. And the evil written it. across his knuckles, maybe if he was an adult, but this just sounds like something in emo right. He teen. was what? He was 18 years old yeah. and liked heavy metal? Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Eccles willingly took a polygraph test, and the administering officer concluded that Eccles, quote, recorded significant responses indicative of deception. In addition to Eccles, investigators focused their attention on Jason Baldwin, a friend of Damien's, like I said, who also had evil ink to cross his left knuckles. And like Eccles, Baldwin denied any involvement in the killings, but detectives on the case increasingly thought otherwise. So they have these three scapegoats that they're after. And investigations might have stalled on into the three boys were it not for the work of a local waitress named Vicki Hutchison. Detective Bray asked her if she knew about rumored cult activity in the community. I guess he was just like getting coffee, sitting at the little bar one day right. in her diner and was like, hey, you heard about any of them demon, demons running around? And she stated that she would ask around. And she also agreed to, quote, play detective. Oh, I'm sure she loved that. Yeah. Knowing the police were already focusing on Damien Eccles, Hutchison asked her neighbor, who just so happened to be flag-stealing, race-car-driving Jesse Miss Kelly Jr., about the brooding teen and his occult connections. And she also did this by feigning a romantic interest in Eccles, and she asked Miss Kelly to arrange a meeting. And with the blessing of the West Memphis Police Department, Hutchison asked Miss Kelly to arrange an introduction to Damien, who she said would like to go or excuse me, who she said she would like to go out with. Jesse agreed, and shortly thereafter brought Damien over to Hutchinson's house and made introductions. And the next part of this, Vicki came up with quite a tale. She told investigators that on the night of May 19th, she and Jesse were driven by Damien in a red Ford Escort, which was odd given that Damien never had any car, he was poor, he'd never driven a car. But anyways, she said that he drove them to what's known as an SBAT, which is a gathering of witches in a field outside of town where she encountered 10 young people. They each had their faces and arms painted black. They were stripping off their clothes and, quote, touching each other. And she claimed those participating in the orgy used nicknames like Spider, Snake, and Lucifer. And offended by the naked activity, she, according to herself, asked Damien to drive her back home, which he did, and they did leave Jesse behind at this orgy. So that's the story she's going with. Interesting. In late May, Vicki um, and her eight-year-old son, Aaron, met with the detectives, and while Vicki shared her story about the, the wood orgy, or the orgy in the woods, <laughs> Aaron told authorities that he and the three murdered boys often visited Robin Hood Woods together, and that on one visit to the woods, they saw five men sitting in a circle chanting and doing, quote, what men and ladies do. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. On June 2nd, West Memphis police polygraphed Vicki, and they said that she was telling the truth. 
That's funny because later we find out that she was not. And, and her son, she like somehow had her son come in and say he was friends with the boys and all yeah. that. Yeah. Convinced by the polygraph results that they had their murderer, the police picked up Jesse Miss Kelly for questioning at about 9 a.m. the next day. And they tell Jesse there was a $35,000 reward for information leading to convictions in the case. And if he helps them solve the case, his family will be eligible for the money. So you have to keep in mind, Jesse is the one that has the very low IQ. Yeah. And I don't know if you've ever watched or read anything on, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, where they um, bring out confessions, false confessions is the word I'm looking for. Yeah. It happens all the time. Easy manipulation. And you've got a poor kid Mm -hmm. who has a low IQ and probably loves his family and you offer him money. Like, and he's just like, if I tell them this, I'm not going to jail. They said I get money. Right. I can put more flags on my race car. Right. Yeah. You also have to keep in mind that he is a minor and his parents were not present at the time. That's not allowed. Mm -hmm. During his polygraph uh, or yeah, polygraph interview, he initially denied participating in either satanic rituals or the murders. But after hours of harsh questioning, because that's what they do, they wear you down by hours and hours of asking the same questions. Inspector Gary Gitchell and Ridge, um, Jesse begins to tell the officers what they want to hear. And he tells them that he and Damien and Jason committed the murders. And later Jesse would offer this account of his experience. Do you, you want to read that part? Sure. He says, quote, I kept telling Inspector Gitchell and Detective Ridge, I didn't know who did it. I just knew of it, what my friend had told me. But they kept hollering at me. They kept saying they knew I had something to do with it because other people had told them. After I told them what the three boys were wearing, Gary Gitchell told me, was any of them tied up? That's when I went along with him. I repeated what he told me. I said, Yes, they were tied up. He asked, what, were, what was they tied up with? I told him a rope. He got mad. He told me, blanket, Jesse, don't mess with me. He said, no, they was tied up with shoestrings. I had to go through the whole story again until I got it right. They hollered at me until I got it right. So whatever he was telling me, I started telling them him back. But I figured something was wrong because I, if I'd killed him, I'd have known how I'd done it. Oh, if like, I'd killed him, I would have known that I'd done it. Right. Like if I, I would have known how I did it if I actually did it. Yeah. So, like, you you said whatever they tied up with. I don't know, a rope. Uh, mm-hmm. That's the most common thing. Yeah. Like, if, I'd actually, if I'd actually killed him, I would have known it was shoestrings. Bless him. Bless. So keep in mind that Jesse got very important details wrong about the crime scene. For one, he said that the boys had been murdered during the day when they were all accounted for at school. And he also said the boys had been tied up with rope when they had been tied up with shoelaces. But the the thing that stands out the most to me is, yeah, they, we, we did it during the day. Mm-hmm. All the boys were at school. Right. So. But nevertheless, by 10.30 p.m. on June 3rd, 1993, all three teenagers were rounded up and each charged with three counts of capital murder. At a press conference the next morning held to announce the arrest, Gary Gitchell is asked how confident he felt about his case on a 1 to 10 scale, and Gitchell answers 11. On August 4th, 1993, Judge David Burnett presided at a pretrial hearing in Marion, Arkansas, and he ruled that Miss Kelly should be tried separately from Eccles and Baldwin. In another important pretrial ruling, Burnett concludes that all three defendants should be tried as adults rather than juveniles. So they're trying Miss Kelly separate. He's the one that made the confession, 
and he's saying that they need to be tried as adults. So Jesse goes to trial first, and Inspector Gary Gitchell took to the stand to describe the circumstances surrounding Jesse's confession. He said that Jesse remained, quote, very relaxed during the long interrogation, which, by the way, was 12 hours. And the jury then got to listen to the audio tape of Miss Kelly's 34-minute long confession. So, so you've got 12, 12 hours, hours cut down to 34 minutes. Right. On cross-examination, Gitchell conceded uh, that Jesse's initial story contained a number of errors, including that the killings took place near noon and that the boys had been tied up with brown rope. But he dismissed the errors, stating, quote, Jesse simply got confused. That's all. Yeah. And, okay. Mm-hmm. He did get confused. You're right. You, right. He, he got confused because he didn't do it. Yeah. There were virtually no physical uh, evidence linking Jesse, Jason, or Damien to the crime scene, except for one small fiber found on a Cub Scout cap. One of the boys was uh, on one of the boys that was microscopically similar to fibers found on a shirt in Damien's house, and that a red rayon fiber found near the bodies was also microscopically similar to the fiber on a red bathrobe found in Jesse's home. So microscopically similar is not the same as damning the, evidence. Y- yeah. yeah. On cross-examination, the crime lab's findings appeared even less suspicious after the, this doctor conceded that many fibers are microscopically similar to each other and that the discovery proved nothing. Right. That's not like a blood sample. It's not, we, like, that's if, not DNA. Yeah. If we both had like cotton t-shirts on and they pulled the strand. And they, they happened yeah. to be red. Yeah. yeah. But despite all of this, Jesse was found guilty of first degree on all three counts. And in the penalty phase of the trial, the jury decided to sentence Jesse to life in prison without the opportunity for parole. Two weeks after the verdict in the Miss Kelly trial, jury selection began in Jonesboro, Arkansas, for the trial of Damien and Jason Baldwin. Only the day before the trial opened, Dan Stidham announced, Mr. Miss Kelly made a decision last night that he is not going to testify against his co-defendants. So that's just more proof to me that he, he didn't, he's a good guy. Yeah. Without Jesse's testimony... And that taped confession, the state was left with a thin circumstantial they're, case. They're so, left with a microscopically similar piece right. of red yeah. string. So they can't use Jesse's testimony. Yeah. In later testimony, Detective Bren Ridge reported that during Damien's long interrogation at the police station, he had claimed all persons hold, quote, demor- demonic forces inside them, end quote, and made observations about the mystical significance of water and noted that the... Th- that the number three uh, there had significance. We've talked about that before. The number three is very important. Mm-hmm. The Holy Trinity, blah, blah, blah. And there were three boys that were killed. And he also was talking about Wicca. Again, He he's just a Wiccan, I guess. He's nothing nefarious, just a Wiccan. Moreover, Ridge testified Damien acknowledged reading books by Stephen King, an author famous for The Shining, all, all those scary novels. And he thought that the the detective was quoted as saying that he thought this was quote strange and an officer who conducted a search of damien's home testified that the search turned up 11 black t-shirts that's like chase's closet that's david's closet that's my closet mm-hmm. the book never on a broomstick and the skull of a dog okay I, i'm just gonna go out on limb here and say it i i, I would have been convicted as the murderer too in yeah. this like I talk, guys, all, I talk all the time about how like everyone has sin inside of them uh-huh. or 
water is like significance and like, you know, in the, in, in stories, it represents a baptismal moment. Mm -hmm. And the number three is like very biblical. Mm -hmm. And I have Stephen King books on my bookshelf and my, most of my closet is the color black. Now I don't have the skull of a dog. I was going to say. But, but boys love that kind of stuff. Like if they found that in the woods, they're right. going to take it home. Or like, what if that was the like skull of his like beloved pet? Yeah. Like people have dog ashes, mm -hmm. I, like, and never on a broomstick, honestly sounds like a, a cute kid story. It read. sounds like a little kid story. So I don't, I mean. The fact that they had to bring the 11, the black, 11 black t shirts means you have nothing. I know. So the crowd in the courtroom gasped in shock when prosecution witness Michael Carson, who was a 16-year-old who shared jail <laughs> time with Baldwin, testified that Jason admitted to him that he, quote, dismembered the kids and, quote, sucked the blood. I'm not going to read that part. Sexual stuff. Uh, Carson told jurors he came forward with his story months after his alleged conversation with Jason because he saw on tele television how, quote, brokenhearted the parents of the missing boys were and because, quote, I have a soft heart. I couldn't take it. And this explosive testimony and the thin reed of bathrobe fiber from Jason's home that was said to be microscopically similar to a fiber found near the bodies, it just represented the entire prosecution case against Jason Baldwin. They had a tiny piece of fabric and this guy jailhouse testimony. A, right, jailhouse testimony. That he testified months well, later. Yeah. The state's case against Jason was sufficiently weak, so weak that they had earlier approached his attorneys with a proposal to ask only for a sentence of 40 years with parole possible in 15 in return for his testifying against Damien. And Jason emphatically rejected this proposal because he's like, I didn't do this. And neither did they. Mm -hmm. After opening its case with testimony from Pam Eccles, who told jurors that her son spent the night of the murders at home with her and in phone conversation with two girlfriends, the defense called Damien to the stand, and Damien was asked about his interest in Wicca, and he explained that it was just basically a close involvement with nature, and he told them, I'm not a Satanist. Um, he also said, I don't believe in human sacrifices or anything like that. And Price asked Damien to read excerpts from his personal journal, journal, which included favorite quotes from Metallica and A Midsummer's Night Dream. Again, Shakespeare quotes? Yeah. I, like, I'm yeah, screwed. You're, you're done. Uh, yeah. You better go hide those things when you get home. I know. Asked why he kept a dog skull in his bedroom, Damien replied, I just thought it was kind of cool. And asked why he had the word evil tattooed across his knuckles, Damien had a similar answer. He said, I just kind of thought it was cool, so I did that. Then they questioned him why he wore black. And Damien responded, I was told that I look good in black and I'm a real self-conscious uh, that way in the way I dress. And, and so it went. None of those, I, I teach 17 and 18-year-olds, none of those answers surprised me. No. Because it's cool. Because yeah. someone told me I look good in black. Mm -hmm. I'm self-conscious about this. Yeah. Sorry. The Metallica mm -hmm. quotes. Nothing's standing out to me. No. The defense sought to present Damien as a teenager who might be different from most in West Memphis, but not as someone anyone should fear. He, uh, Eccles denied having anything to do with the deaths of the three boys, testifying, quote, I never even heard of them before I, till I saw it on the news. The defense also presented evidence raising questions about the quality of the police investigation. Like we were saying earlier, there were quite a few mess-ups. Gary Gitchell admitted that although West Memphis owned both a video camera and an audio recorders, they hadn't bothered to tape any of their several interviews with Damian Eccles. Of course not. It's convenient. And after listening to several hours of testimony, the jury retired to the jury room and began scribbling out pros and cons for Jason and Damian. That's just a... The I love classic a pro, method. I love a pro con list. There you go. 
Jason earned several pros. Uh, they had him for stuck to his story, exhibited remorse, and in school. He got cons for being Damien's best friend, his jail that jailhouse confession, low self-esteem, and frequented the crime scene, which we said all, all the teenagers all the in that area did. did. Damien got pros only for being, quote, intelligent and manic depressive, for having a loyal family, and for sticking to his story. But his long list of negatives included satanic follower, manipulative, dishonest, weird, something to gain, blue kisses to parents, inappropriate thought patterns. <laughs> Probably Stephen King in there, too. But despite hardly any hard evidence, both defendants were found guilty of capital murder and the deaths of all three boys. Family members of the murdered boys cheered and hugged. Jason seemed to cry while Damien showed very little emotion. Terry Hobbs, Stevie Branch's stepfather, told reporters that he'd hoped both defendants would be executed. Quote, those guys took a life, let them lose a life. And he only wished he would have, quote, 10 minutes alone with Baldwin and Eccles to, quote, do to them what they did to the boys. That's, we'll talk about him in a minute. I was about to say, that yeah. is more damning than mm -hmm. 11 black t-shirts to he me. Is a, he is a character. Yeah. The jurors decided to sentence Jason to life in prison without opportunity for parole, but Damien, the jurors concluded, should die by lethal injection. Literally no solid evidence, but he got death by lethal injection. After Judge Burnett sentenced Eccles to die on May 5th, the defendants were led out of the Jonesboro courtroom, and Jason Baldwin was transported to the penitentiary at Pine Bluff, while Damian Eccles began life on death row in the state's maximum security prison near Varner, Arkansas. This is terrifying. Yeah. That you could just be a little weird. I know. And get sentenced to death. I know. Then in 1996, there is an HBO a documentary that aired that's called Paradise Lost: The Child Murders at Robin Hood Hills. Also, I want to I want to appreciate the uh, John Milton reference there. Paradise Lost is not a literary, I, literary reference. Yeah, Thank there you, you go. You. The film depicted West Memphis as just a hellhole, essentially, with residents who were blinded by fantasies of satanic cults and jurors who were unable to sort facts from rationality because they weren't. Mm -hmm. The film spawned a movement and soon a website dedicated to gaining the release of the West Memphis 3, WM3.org, was established. And as the movement to free the West Memphis 3 gained traction, a number of celebrities joined the cause, which brought the case under more scrutiny. Among those were the singer Eddie Vedder of the band Pearl Jam. You might have heard of them. Right, because I'm sure all the like rock bands mm -hmm. are worried that yeah, that, their, that that their lyrics are going to get kids in trouble. Mm -hmm. This one seems like an outlier to me. The Dixie Chicks. Uh, uh, now just the Chicks. Yeah. yeah. The punk rock icon and poet Henry Rollins. And then, you know, my boy, Johnny Depp. Again, because he's, he's he was a fringe kid. I mean, yeah, he's going to be like, quote unquote, weird. Mm -hmm. And yeah, they found themselves in, in right. the... the um, in these people and these young boys yeah. concerns that the West Memphis three might have been wrongfully convicted continued to grow following the release in March 2000 of the paradise lost Two revelations, which suggested the real killer of the three boys was John Mark Byers, the stepdad. Mm -hmm. yeah. The paradise lost sequel was followed two years later with an exhaustive an analysis of the case by a woman named Mara Leverett in her book, Devil's Knot, The True Story of the West Memphis Three. And like the filmmakers, Leverett argued that a miscarriage of justice occurred in the 1994 trials. 
in 2003, Vicki, you know, well, Vicki Hutchinson, the one that was mm-hmm. the witch the orgy, waitress, mm-hmm, yeah. who had testified about attending an SBAT with Jesse and Eccles, told a reporter for the Arkansas police that everything she had told the police a decade earlier was a lie. She reported she felt compelled to cooperate with the police out of fear that if she didn't, the police would take her son away. So they could have uh, possibly... That black- was what, 10 years later? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another bombshell fell in 2007 after DNA found at the crime scene was retested and none of it found to match the DNA of Eccles, Baldwin, or Miss Kelly. A hair found in a knot used to tie up one of the victims is, however, found to be, quote, not inconsistent, uh, end quote, with Terry Hobbs, stepfather to Stevie Branch. So that's two stepfathers that Mm -hmm. were potentially involved? One of them was a stepfather, one of them was a yeah so okay. there's but okay. the two of the dads yeah could be involved on the basis of this new evidence john mark byers told reporters that he now believed the three young men convicted were innocent however the new dna evidence failed to convince judge burnett what that a new trial for any of the west memphis three was justified i think he was just over it at that point so he kept denying their appeals but attorneys for all three appealed burnett's decision to they went higher than him they went to the arkansas supreme court and finally, on November 4, 2010, the defendants received the first good news in their cases that they have heard from any court anywhere. The Arkansas Supreme Court announced an opinion ordering the trial court to reconsider whether newly discovered DNA evidence or new evidence of juror misconduct in their original trials justified ordering a new trial or exoneration of the three defendants. So prosecutors just worried about the prospect of retrying the case were in a scramble. They were faced with two options. They could retry the case where the evidence now weighed against them and public sentiment had switched and supported the defendants, or they could let the three men go free. And a a bit of legal maneuvering brought forth the unusual third option, which is the Alford plea. Which we've talked about the Alford plea Mm -hmm. before in one of our previous cases. It's very popular with the Staircase, the documentary Mm -hmm. on Netflix, but in an Alfred plea, the criminal defendant does not admit the act, but admits that the prosecution could likely prove the charge, and the court will pronounce the defendant guilty. The defendant may plead guilty yet not admit all the facts that compromise the crime. An Alfred plea allows defendant to plead guilty even while unable or unwilling to admit guilt. A defendant making an Alfred plea maintains his innocence of the offense charged. So, I don't. It doesn't make any sense to me, but that, it, that's it's what like did. you're admitting you're saying you're guilty, but you're not admitting you did it. Mm-hmm. You're you're basically just admitting to fit with the circumstances of the trial and the jurors and everything that's going against you. But you're saying yeah. I didn't do it. Yeah, I did it, but I didn't do it. Yeah. But I but I know that there's no way I'm going to be found that I did not with do these it. crazy people here in Arkansas. Right. So this deal was put before them, and Damien wanted to take it. He, I mean, he's sitting on death he's row. He's on death row, yeah. But Jason didn't want to take it initially. Because he, he's not on death yeah. row. He's in jail. Yeah. Right. He said that he would rather sit in jail his whole life than admit to something he didn't do, which, again, sounds like he's stuck with his story this whole time. He didn't do it. He doesn't want to accept any plea deals. He doesn't want to testify against them, the other boys. But Jason finally agreed to the deal, and he later said, quote, I didn't take the deal for me. I took it for Damien. At a hearing on August 19, 2011, Judge David Lasser, having replaced Judge Burnett finally on the case, called what happened, quote, a tragedy on all sides. And then Jesse Miss Kelly, Jason Baldwin, and Damien Eccles finally walked uh, free. So you have 1993 to 2011. That's a long time. Mm-hmm. But the question still remains, if they didn't kill the boys, but then who did? did? 
The crime scene did reveal several important factors. One, whoever did this had to have a certain level of malice in their hearts for the three boys. You know, it's kind of like crime of passion is normally people who mm-hmm. are familiar with the victim. Mm-hmm. Number two, significant amount of strength. Number three, the ability to keep the boys alive, although potentially harmed, until at least 1 a.m., potentially about five to six hours after they were last seen heading into the woods. And number four, the desire to hide the bodies and the intelligence to know that meant covering up the evidence. So, so that right there rules out the boy, magi- with, magi- the boy with the low IQ. Yeah. Like, there's no way he would have thought to do the mm-hmm. sticks in the... Right. And if you take him out of it in his confession... Then it's... Then, then you don't have the other two at all. Mm-hmm. Then you have Mr. Bojangles. So oh, that's right. I yeah. probably forgot about him. Yeah, right. Bloody Bojangles back. Mm-hmm. I'm just imagining him just eating something real bad and just... No. And it no. gets smeared all over the wall. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. he's now a suspect There's, in this case for forever. Right. <laughs> right. So his arm was actually in a cast. Um, and Mr. Bojangles would not have had the strength and ability to subdue, bind, beat, and drown three boys. At least not by himself. So... Another thing was he was very disoriented, and Mr. Bojangles was more likely under the influence of narcotics during this event rather than deranged and murderous. And his disorientation might explain why he went into a public space, bloody and poopy and bloody, went in the wrong bathroom. He he had gone into the women's bathroom. And the fact that the toilet was filled with excrement is also a telltale sign here of drug intoxication. So, So apparently crack cocaine, which was very popular in the 90s often causes users to suddenly void their bowels and the other thing because there's three there were three boys so someone mm-hmm. had to do this three times over so mm-hmm. you might can say somebody you like drunken on drugs could do something like this once but mm-hmm. not three times in the yeah, same and then exact cover it manner up and, and then cover yeah statistics show that most crime is contained within race there is very little black on white crime for instance The man did not appear dangerous. Um, Instead, he seemed as though he were having a medical emergency, perhaps bleeding after an altercation with someone else, and in his drunken state, stumbled into the first place he found to take care of his needs. Next point is the boys were not stabbed to death. Mm -hmm. And he was was covered in blood. The blood on the man was likely his own or someone else's. But the biggest flaw that most people see in the theory of Mr. Bojangles is as the potential murder of the boys is the timing. Because this incident occurred around 8.30 p.m. at night while the boys had not been seen by anyone since around 7 p.m. And they had been reported missing to police by Mark Byers approximately 30 minutes before. We know this from the coroner's reports that the boys died between 1 a.m. and 5 a.m. And that is four and a half hours at the earliest after the bleeding man arrived at Bojangles. But whatever happened to this man or whatever crimes he may have committed were long before the boys died. Uh, yeah, I don't. Mr. Bojangles is not it for me. Just, but it's interesting that that is weird. Something that but, strange happened the same night three boys go missing. But, but also, if you were to like pinpoint all the strange things that happen mm-hmm. on any given day, you yeah. could probably draw some like illogical conclusion, con- mm-hmm. like conclusion too. Yeah. Some theories claim that he might have been a homeless person who stumbled into the woods, saw the boys and their abductor, tried to intervene, and was wounded in his efforts. And this could even explain why he was disoriented, because he ran in fear for his life and the life of those sh- the children and became exerted. He might have been seriously injured, cut with a knife possibly by the perpetrator, for instance, and hurting so badly that he nearly passed out. I actually... I want to believe that. Yeah. Yeah. And it also just gave him the mad runs. Right. Mad blood runs. That's the drugs right there. Yeah. But yeah. I, I, I could see that. 
So then we have another suspect, and that is John Mark Byers. That thing he said in the courtroom, let me mm-hmm. do to them, what th- that that weirded me out. Yeah, well, because, here's some more stuff. Okay. So he actually had a long history of run-ins with the law and had been accused of multiple violent crimes. In 1973, his parents had called the police to report that he was threatening them with a butcher knife. A few years later, he was facing charges relating to the use of terroristic threats, grand theft, and drug use. Okay, mm-hmm. so not not a clean record. Mm-hmm. Michael Byers' dad, while filming the documentary Paradise Lost, John Mark Byers, gave the film crew a hunting knife. It's an odd gift. They noticed that there was what appeared to be blood on the knife and a part of the knife that would have been difficult to clean. And they, in turn, give the knife back to the West Memphis Police Department, who have it tested for DNA. And wouldn't you know, the blood was a match for Michael Byers. But he and John Mark Byers shared... Oh, Hold on, I did something to my... Oh, I lost my place. <laughs> Hold on, sorry. I'm the worst at this freaking Google. First of all, I didn't have an email for the first That's right. 30 years she of my had, life. She had to get an email for this. Google Docs was difficult for me. Da-da-da. So he gives a knife to the department. They tested The blood was a match to Michael Byers, but he and John Mark Byers shared the same blood type. So... Byers initially claimed the knife had been never been used. However, after blood was found on the knife, he changed his story. He stated that he had used it only once to cut deer meat. Okay, but deer meat and human deer blood and human blood would not have come back the same. Right. Also, but but why would you give the, the film knife. the the murder weapon? Like, well, I guess they weren't. I, yeah, it's just weird. Yeah, deranged. Byers agreed to and passed a polygraph test about the murders. So there's him. Take that for what you will. I don't like any of that. So then you have Starry, Starry, Stevie Branch's father, Terry Hobbs. He is uh, DNA testing in 2007 has identified a hair fragment found on Michael Moore's bindings to be consistent with Hobbs, which all the boys hung out with each other. They were all yeah, friends. I could see I where, could. but uh, sketchy. So Mr. Terry Hobbs had been in trouble with the police as well when he was 24. This is so strange. He walked into a woman's apartment, just a random woman's apartment, grabbed her boobs. <laughs> she yelled at him and he left. Just going. Just okay. Yep. All right, Terry. Just a normal Tuesday. Terry Hobbs was arrested for drug possession in 2003. He was reported twice for abusing his daughter, Amanda. I don't like that. Pamela Hobbs took out a restraining order against him in 2005. And they are now divorced, and Terry's name was actually removed from Stevie's tombstone. Okay, so family doesn't like him either. Yep. In November of 1994, more than a year after the murders of the three children in West Memphis, Hobbs again experienced trouble with the law. So after an altercation with his wife, Pam Hobbs, where he reportedly hit her, he shot his brother-in-law. And Jackie Jr. Hicks came to the Hobbs residence after he was informed of the encounter. Terry Hobbs would later state that he shot Jackie Jr. in self-defense, and he did survive the shooting, but died years later as a result of complications pertaining to his injuries, and Hobbs was sentenced to six months in prison for aggravated assault. So he's violent. He has a violent Mm -hmm. history. Yeah, I don't like him either. And his stories just weren't adding up. He said that he recounted visiting the Robin Hood woods between 6 and 6.30 p.m. with his friend David Jacoby. In one interview, he described 20 to 40 people out there searching on three- and four-wheelers, motorcycles, and bicycles. In another interview, he says probably 100 people were looking for the boys before dark. And this entire account is just made up. 
the three victims were last seen at 6 p.m. and not reported missing until after 8 p.m. So they wouldn't have been searching them. Yeah. yeah. There were no immediate massive turnouts for a search. So all these people in four wheelers and all of that. Also, that would be a horrible, I feel like that would be a horrible way to look because you'd just be running Run over, over the crime scene. Yeah, in the dark. And if there were so many witnesses that it would have made it impossible for Hobbs to have killed the children, these witnesses would have prevented others from committing the murders as well. They're all driving around around mm-hmm. in, in the Robin Hood Hills at the time of the murders. Furthermore, David Jacoby has declared an, in an affidavit that he was not in the woods with Terry Hobbs at the time and that his searching with Hobbs consisted of briefly driving around the neighborhood. So he wasn't even in the woods. Yeah, I was about to say, go ask the friend he was with. So, right. Yeah, I don't, okay, I don't like either of those guys. So those are the suspects we have. Y'all tell us which one. It's, not, it's not Mr. Bojangles. No. Because this, this crime has still never been solved. Is it still open or do you know if it's closed? I don't know, technically. But where, where are the, the West Memphis three now? So Damien Eccles left death row and married Lori Davis, an attorney. They live in New York City where Eccles works as a writer and a photographer. And he remains a devoted practitioner of the magic. Mm. M-A-G-I-C-K. We do not know what became of the son he had with his former girlfriend, Domini. I, I assume he's involved in their life. There's, there's not much information on that. Jason Baldwin is currently living in Texas, and after his release from prison, he produced the 2013 film Devil's Knot. In 2017, Baldwin co-founded Proclaim Justice, which is a nonprofit working to free the wrongfully convicted, and he is currently in college with plans to go to law school. The only thing is he's a felon still because if you take the Alfred plea, you don't get rid of your hmm. your felon charge. So Interesting. I, don't, I doubt you can get a job as a lawyer, but I hope that that works out for him. There might be some sort of like loophole for that. Could be. And then Jesse Miss Kelly returned home to his father, who died just a few weeks in um, into February 2021. Oh, so Jesse was arrested in 2017 for multiple traffic violations. Go- goes back yeah. to that race car Word. flag in the backyard. Listen, he was fined 875 dollars, but not returned to prison, despite the fact that his agreement to the Alfred plea can be rescinded if he is arrested again. He's like, I love it. Race card, Talladega. I like to race, and I'm gonna, but I'm not a murderer. Yeah. So Dang. that is a very long, but also if you listen to any other podcasts on this murder, very condensed version of the West Memphis Three. Yeah, because we weren't going into all the details of those yeah. poor boys. Yeah. I, so it's not Mr. Bojangles. I don't think it's those, Mr. Bojangles, although those, that's very coincidental. I'm thinking, I'm those thinking old Mr. Hobbs. Stepdads. Yeah. Yeah. Those stepfathers were, were The sketchy. possibility that the person who together? did that. Yeah. Yeah. I think they like were in cahoots together and did Could it. Could be. What if the person that did that is not on that list at all and is just still running around everywhere? There's no way. Mm-mm. They would well, have gotten in trouble for something or, mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, there you have it. But we're back. I was just about to say. We're back in the good. We didn't even talk about that at the beginning. That There were just a couple of weeks where I just we, um, threw up. Well, it was a series of unfortunate events. Like, tree fell in your house. You were sick. School started. Boys were out of town. It's just, it was just, mm. we had a, a series of unfortunate events. Let me and tell you this. So we talked by, we talked by ourselves for a few episodes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is awkward. I, yeah. I hated it. Like, power to the people who do podcasts by themselves. But mm-hmm, that was mm-hmm. strange. Yep. I, um, when I was driving home that day, when I got sick at work, I, uh, I tried to reach for a TJ Maxx bag, like one of the reusable ones. 
reusable ones in the back of my car and I didn't make it and I threw up on myself driving twice. Um, that's and that's why we didn't have an episode yeah. for you this week. Yeah. And you know like when you sneeze you have to close your um, eyes or your eyeballs will pop out of your head. Kind of the same thing for throwing up, but if you're driving you can't. So I was just ten and two mm. on the wheel, eyes Ugh. wide open, vomit in my lap. But at least I was wearing scrubs. Why, why don't you pull over? I was on the interstate. Oh, oh yeah, I was yeah, going seventy miles per hour while yeah. that was happening. Yeah, don't do that. Mm-hmm. But then I threw it all up and I felt better. All good. Yep. So we're fine. So we're good. We're back. We'll we'll catch you next time. In the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram at Scary Tales Podcast, where we do all the things and post all this stuff. I think if you go to our bio, we still have the link tree for the. Uh, we have some merch. Oh yeah, that's true. Maybe we should come out with some in time for spooky. It's true. Halloween's Let us know if you have any ideas. Until then, Hannah's going to be over there drinking her balsamic vinegar, and I'm going to sip on this sweet tea, and we'll catch you on the flippity-flop. Theodore, do you have any closing words? Translation. Bye-bye.